Well, let's open the beloved word of the Lord to James 1. Would you find James 1? And our sermon text this morning is just one verse, verse 12. For the last several times together, we've been considering what James, our Lord's brother, has had to say in his first century letter to those dispersed Christians who were being tribulated. Some were suffering poverty. And you can imagine all the trials and difficulties associated with poverty. Some were suffering, oddly enough, in their prosperity and all of the trials and temptations that come with prosperity that we have examined in previous lessons. But he's writing to tell them that God reigns, God is in charge over the fullness of the lives of his people. And we come to a transitional verse in verse 12. Before James will begin talking about temptation, he has something else to say about trial, about enduring difficulty, whether it's difficulty caused by sickness or adversity or poverty or the difficulties caused by having many blessings. He has a word, and that word is in verse 12. Here's what he says, the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word of the Lord stands forever, and may he richly bless his people as they hear it. Before we come to what James says exactly in verse number 12, we want to consider some of the truths that we've learned so far. As I said, this is a transitional verse, and it leads us to pause and consider where we've come from. And there's some things we've learned about Christianity and about Christians and about difficulty. And the first thing we need to be reminded of this morning is that there's nothing strange here going on. It is no strange thing at all to encounter such tribulations. He speaks of those in verse number 2, the various kinds of trials. It is normal to experience trials as a Christian. It has been the common experience of God's people from the very, very beginning without exception. You might remember the words of the Apostle Peter, also writing in the late first century. And he told his audience, to whom he wrote, he said, Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It is not strange at all. It is not weird at all. It is is not new at all to be Tested. And the same may be said, as we'll see later, about temptations. Remember Paul's word to the Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So if you're suffering, if you're tribulated, if you're facing a trial, there's nothing new going on. It has always been the case that God's people are suffering and are going uphill and are often sorely tried facing difficulty and pain, many uphill climbs, and sometimes profound temptations. This is par for the course. Maybe you'll be helped in dealing with the reality of that fact by thinking of our Lord Jesus. The prophet Isaiah called him a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. If you need more convincing of that fact, you can read Mark 14. There's that very poignant and 
moving depiction of that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. And Mark tells us these things, that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He went deeper into the garden, and he began to be distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to his disciples, those three, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has also agonized deeply over the trials and tribulations of life. Our Lord Jesus has felt every pain and every infirmity. He's faced every question. He has confronted every fear. He has known every sorrow. He has scaled every mountain of adversity. And as the author of the Hebrew letter says, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we must believe and we must know the truth that the Father knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. So take comfort. You are not alone. There is nothing strange or unusual going on. There's nothing out of sorts in your life, really, if today is a day of trial for you. But then we've learned something else. The reality is, Trials often leave us reeling and perplexed. And James is very strongly suggesting this here. The trials that the Lord sends into our lives often leave us perplexed, rocked back on our heels. When we face such adversities, it's, it's very apparent that we don't know the mind of the Lord, that, that His ways are not our ways. He doesn't go by our blueprint. And so the trials that we all face sometimes, and maybe, maybe this is where you are this morning, sometimes leave us disappointed with God. And I say that with, without the slightest negative reflection upon His perfect faithfulness and holiness as our Father. And yet, yet there are times we are disappointed that things have turned out like they have. It is true. The frequent twists and turns that come into our lives through His sovereign hand often surprise us. They, they many times shatter us. They destroy our expectations. They catch us off guard and unprepared. And yet every one of them comes from the sovereign hand of God, but without warning or announcement. They just come. And many times those trials interrupt our lives. They divert and cancel our plans. They leave us reeling and we feel the weight of the unexpected and the unknown. And these trials reveal our limited vision, our feebleness. They reveal our lack of adequate resources and strength. And they show us our massive need for the mercy of God. But they do shake us. I believe that the psalmists, plural, the psalmists, felt that when we read in that great Israelite songbook words like this, how long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? How long, O Lord, will you, will you hide yourself in heaven forever? How long, O Lord, must I endure and that's what trials do. We ask those questions of our Heavenly Father. Just the other night, I guess it was Monday night, we were together meeting and 
training our five deacon candidates that you nominated, and we're getting them ready for their examinations and for election to serve you. And part of their training is to to look deep into the doctrines of the faith. And we were discussing that blessed doctrine of adoption. That doctrine that says that by grace and by virtue of our faith union with Christ, we are made the children of God and are thereby joint heirs with Christ. We were talking about that doctrine and we remembered something. We remembered how the Apostle Paul twice says that the Lord, when he saved us, sent into our hearts the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And virtually everyone in here this morning has heard a sermon on that name, Abba, and doubtless the preacher said, that's a word that's best translated, Daddy. And that's about all you know about that. And that's not even the best translation. But let me show you the real substance of that word. You know where that word Abba, Father, comes from? You know what Paul is thinking about as he says the spirit of adoption from the Father calls us and enables us to cry out Abba, Father. It comes from this place, Mark 14, 36, Jesus sweating drops of blood. Jesus in agony. He is about to be betrayed and crucified and beaten or beaten and then crucified and then entombed after his death. And there he is facing all of that and he says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a cry of a desperate child to one who always hears. That's the gift we've been given in Christ, to cry out in our desperation when we don't see what God is doing nor understand what the Lord is doing. We can join with Jesus, our our brother, our Savior, and say, Abba, Father, out of fear, out of dread, in our weakest moments, we can cry that cry of desperation because we belong to that Father. And we often do when we're tried and tested. We too are like Jesus, rocking and reeling under the weight of sin, under the weight of the world's guilt and our own guilt. Times of such testing are not pleasant. But that's what they are. They are times of testing. And James has told us that in those times of testing that knock us back on our heels, we need God's wisdom. Without God's wisdom, we remain confused. We feel abandoned and forsaken. We we are confined to a cloud of doubt without wisdom from God. And God gives wisdom generously to every praying saint, to every suffering saint who prays. And that wisdom will in time provide the sweet consolation we need to help us trust our Father even when we have no clue what He's doing. There's something else we've learned along the way as we pause at verse 12. It's very reassuring. It is very important to realize that James writes not from a mood of gloom and doom, but from great joy. In fact, he's called upon those who suffer to joy, to take joy, to rejoice. And the reason he does that is because there's a purpose in view. 
Every trial, every episode of suffering and difficulty is, is designed by God. There is a purpose. There is a great mind and a great heart controlling everything we go through. Everything. And everything that the child of God will experience and must experience will first pass through the strong, loving hands of the one we call Abba, Father. Nothing Absolutely nothing comes into our lives, pleasant or painful, that does not serve the great purposes of our Heavenly Father and build the church and build our faith. I'm reminded of what Paul says to the Philippians in that beloved Philippian epistle. You remember when Paul penned those words, he, he was in prison. And he speaks of that, and he has a lesson for us, the same lesson James is trying to teach us. He says to the Philippians, and and this is the word you need to hear this morning. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is his imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and That means those who guarded Caesar. It has become known throughout the imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so here he is, a prisoner of the emperor in the company of the emperor's troops, and it is a mission field for Paul. And he is licking his chops. He is saying, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Talk about a captive audience. They think I'm in jail, but they're in jail. And he says, word has gotten out that I'm in here preaching that the Lord, through tribulation, the Lord, through putting me on trial and stuffing me in this dungeon, the Lord has inserted the gospel right under the nose of the emperor. And that's what the Lord does. And that's what he's doing in your life. That's a sweeping claim, isn't it? But it's the truth. There are no wasted afflictions. They serve the purposes of God. We've also learned another thing in our journey, and that is seasons of difficulty are a time for faith to grow. You can see James makes it very apparent that these trials come from the hand of God to test our faith. That is to strengthen our faith. It's been said that faith that is not tried and true is worthless. What good is having faith if that faith is not exercised regularly? When I think of that, I I think of a a man I used to know down in central Florida, and I'm glad he's far away and you'll have no idea who he is because I'm going to speak ill of him a little bit. Oh, he was a good brother in Christ, and he bought a Lamborghini. And I think he paid four or $500,000 for it. He bought it. And you know what he did with it? He hid it in his garage He never drove it. 
He parked it in his garage, and because he was afraid someone would steal it, he took empty boxes and stacked those empty boxes in front of it so you could not even see it in his garage. And there it sat for years. He never drove it. I would have thought as his minister, I would have gotten the keys at least once. (laughs) He never drove it. And what good is a, a car with hundreds and hundreds of horsepower and performance capacities and you never drive it? What good is your faith if it's never exercised? And that's what the Lord does. And the testing of our faith, James says, leads to something. It produces endurance or steadfastness or perseverance, you might say. And that's an important word for James. That idea of steadfastness, whatever your translation says, be it perseverance or endurance, all the same idea. That is a magnificent Christian virtue that the Lord wants to produce in you. And so he does it by testing you, putting you on his treadmill. And this virtue of endurance, he crafts it by hand in the fires of adversity. And as he's crafting that virtue of endurance, he is eradicating all weaknesses and all impurities. And so like metal, which is cleansed and purified of all alloy, we are made strong and pure. And that's what he means by the testing of your faith. One commentator on this passage has said that our trials are a sort of divinely given homework in which we work out the truths God has taught us in his word. And through persistent exercise, we make progress in knowledge and we grow in spiritual stature. A week or two ago, on the last day of our vacation, which I'm going to do again, by the way. <laughs> I want you to know that. That was fun. Um, and I appreciate that the pulpit was in great hands those two Sundays. We had a great time. And the last day of our vacation, it was a Thursday. And Carol and I drove up over to a place outside Fort Payne where beautiful glassware is made by hand. I'm looking at Randy Keene because Randy gave me the tip to go there. And we went to this place. And we watched in amazement as the artist would take some liquid glass and they would place that liquid glass on the end of a long pole and plunge that raw material into the heart of a furnace that was burning at 2,250 degrees Fahrenheit. And once that raw glass was glowing fiery red, the artist would blow his breath into the other end of that long pole. He would apply the pressure of his breath, and that molten glass would be shaped into something very beautiful and very expensive. We watched them do that and make several things, and we went into the gift shop, and there were vases and bowls and other pieces of fine glassware for sale, some for multiplied thousands of dollars, and each of them was once a lump of raw glass. But then there was the fire and the pressure of the air, both skillfully applied by the craftsman, and then something most beautiful and expensive was shaped with tender care by the mind and the hand of that artist. And that's what James is saying to you 
but on a much more magnificent plane that God is doing in your life right now. It may be hot where you're at. And you may feel the pressure, maybe like never before, but there is a craftsman at work. And he's not a craftsman whose name you don't know. He is your father. He is Abba. And sometimes he needs to heat you up a little bit and make you more pliable. And then he blows his gentle wind. He pressurizes our lives and he begins to shape us because he's making something wonderful and beautiful and useful in his service. He is producing purity. He is producing strength. He is refining us. He is making us fit for his service. And so our many tribulations are the instruments without which no Christian could reach maturity. And those are the things we've learned so far. But then James carries this great theme of steadfastness a bit further. And he speaks of the man who remains steadfast under trial in verse 12. And look at the way the ESV reads. He, he is speaking of the man who remains steadfast. Again, this word steadfastness or endurance or perseverance makes its appearance known. And, and we have to recall that this kind of endurance that James is talking about all through this section is not passive. He is not talking about a spirit of resignation. He is not trying to depict someone who has a bowed head and downcast eyes and simply exists under a heavy load. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the person who has a triumphant kind of endurance and consistency and constancy, even a joyous endurance, the kind of spirit that will, that will bear things with, as one man writes, blazing hope. It isn't resignation, it is a hopeful endurance. And look at what James says. Look at the amazing thing he claims. Blessed. Blessed is the man, the person, who remains steadfast. Now if you stopped, and maybe you have, maybe you read the email where I introduced this idea this week to the church family. Maybe you've already been processing it, but if you begin to process this statement, blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's a brain twister. Think about that. Think about what's really being claimed here. James is suggesting, in fact, he is more than suggesting that the blessed life is not the trouble-free life. I know I'll never sell any books if I preach this stuff. But this is what the Word of God says. It goes against everything we feel and everything we believe if we're honest. Don't, don't we just assume, every one of us in here assumes that the fewer trials we have, the more blessed and better off we are. In fact, have you prayed with me sometimes? Lord, I'm tired of you testing me with adversity. Please test me with prosperity. I would love to be tested with a lot of prosperity, right? 
We can handle that. But the person who is living the blessed life is the one who is under trial. How often, maybe this week, how often have we looked at our neighbor who appears to be having such an easy time with life and we assume that because their life is less difficult that they are more blessed than we are. And we, we let this mentality seep into our Christianese, don't we? Because when things are going well, how do we, how do we handle that? We say, oh, the Lord has blessed me. But what about when your world has just collapsed? Even in the world of sports, we see this very, very bad theology. Because the guy with the ball runs across the end zone, and he's just scored, and he gives praise to the Lord. But do you ever praise the Lord if you throw an interception? Or you fumble? Or miss a field goal? Or lose the game? But it's clear. It's clear what James is saying What if it is actually true that the best life is the tested life? What if it were true that the most wonderful life we could live on this side of heaven is a life that is under fire? What if it's true that the sweetest existence we know now until we get to glory is that of tribulation and distress? Frankly, that sounds crazy. But here it is before our eyes, and look at the word blessed. Blessed. You know what that is? That's a beatitude. James got it from his brother. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. The same word when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will see mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Now, do you see where James got his theology? And here is a beatitude. Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. There is a blessing and there are blessings for those who give attention to their hopeful posture of steadfastness. And that word blessedness is a rich word that speaks of personal fulfillment and enrichment to the maximum degree possible in the kingdom of God. Blessed. Blessed. In the very season that we are being most sorely and severely tested and stretched, our Lord is blessing us. Now, you're not going to hear this kind of crazy stuff anywhere but in the church. 
Because this does not work in the world. The world does not believe this. The world has been snookered. Probably most of you are too young to know what that word means. You've been deceived. Now the truth is, when you've been not the lowest, you are most blessed. When you feel the fire scorching your skin and the pressure about to crush your ribcage, the Lord is about to bless you. He is blessing you as you hold on to Christ. Notice what James says. When he has stood the test, that is, as endurance comes to play, as we, as we, as we stand, as we are strong, as we maintain our ground and our commitment, as we are anchored to the promises of the Lord, then blessings come. But they only come when we endure. What are we tempted to do, though, when everything falls apart? Think of the opposite. You know, the Lord is saying, look, when, when it gets really hot in the kitchen and you feel the fiery winds blowing against you, stand your ground, hold on to my promises, hold on to me, don't move. Now, what's the temptation? The temptation is to run. How often when we find ourselves in the fires of affliction do we pull away from him? Do we pull away from his people and from the church? How often when life gets complicated and difficult and painful and when it gets obscure, how often is the first thing to go our commitment to Christ? It is. You'll hear people say it's I'm in too much pain to worship. I can't go to church. Life's too difficult. It's just, I got too much on my calendar. I, life has thrown a curve at me. I, I can't serve. I can't, I can't pray. I can't read the word. I don't have time. I don't have, have energy. And that's the temptation that Satan wants you to sink into your soul. It's always easier to abandon ship. Oh, no, no, my dear ones. The Father is looking for the very opposite in us. James, the brother of Jesus, is telling us that what our Father wants is for us to stand the test, to hold on to him, to hold on to his word, and to keep doing everything he has commanded us to do and watch him prove himself faithful to us. And there is a tremendous blessing. There are blessings associated with that. And I hope you're catching a serious truth. And that is the blessing is not in being delivered. The blessing is found in the trial, through the trial, by means of endurance. If you wiggle out... If you take a shortcut or the easy route, you cut off the opportunity to be blessed of God. But if you hold on 
and love Christ and love his word and love his church and love his people and obey him and serve him and you hold on to Jesus though everything says let go then you, you will live the blessed life that Jesus wants you to live. You'll see that James has not listed all the blessings and, and we don't have time to list them. He has summarized the blessings of endurance under the heading crown of life. Those who remain steadfast, even though facing fires of adversity of all kinds, he says, they receive the crown of life. And that crown of life is biblical shorthand for life itself. Abundant life now, eternal life then. You really live as you endure. Now we can think of some of the individual blessings if we want to. I can, I can rattle off four real fast. The blessings that are subsumed under this category of the crown of life. We have the blessing of the Lord's strong presence with us when we suffer. He said, I am with you always. And he is especially with his people when they are being tribulated. We have the blessing of the Lord's abundant comfort. Paul says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance for sure, he says. But the comfort of Christ is ours in abundance. And so we have comfort. And we have the blessing of Christ's continual intercession for us before the Father. Remember that transaction between Peter and Jesus? And Peter's doing what he often did. He's boasting in his strength. And Jesus says, look, Peter, if I could just pull back the curtain of reality, you would see that Satan has demanded that I give you to him so that he can sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter. And we have the blessing of the continual intercession of Jesus for every child that belongs to God. He prays for us. He prays for us. And then we have the support and the encouragement of God's people. We're called to bear one another's burdens. And there are a host of other blessings that are found in that box labeled the crown of life. You're blessed if you endure. It does sound insane. But the truth is, the blessed life is known on the battlefield and not at the spa. It is true that the blessed life is experienced in the furnace of affliction and not in peaceful meadows. It's been said... The crown follows the contest. And the crown of blessing, the crown of blessings that James mentions here is not reserved just for those great and eminent saints. It's for every child of God. Every child of God, no matter where you are on the spectrum of your growth in Christ, every child of God who holds on to Christ and his word and his people and they seek to obey and love him, every one of them will Live a blessed life. The old expositor Matthew Henry said, we only bear the cross for a while and we will wear the crown for eternity. My dear, my dear brothers and sisters, if you are being tested, if you are afflicted, 
If you've been called upon to suffer, then you are blessed. Even in your pain and through your many tears and despite your doubts, you can rejoice in the love and the sovereignty and in the power of your heavenly Father because that's what he wants you to do. And then before we come to the Lord's table, look at the last words of verse 12. Do you see that? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What God has promised is the crown of life. Those who endure will be blessed. But that is a promise given exclusively to the children of the Father. The promise of a blessed life is given only to those who know Christ and who love Him. It is not a promise. It is not an assurance for the world. It is exclusively for you. It is to those whom the Father first loved and He saved through the life and death and resurrection of His Son and He bestowed upon them and in them His Spirit and He enabled us to love Him. It's about love. At the end of the day, what James is saying to you is that what prompts our steadfastness, because you're asking yourself, how am I going to endure? How could I possibly do it? And here's the answer. The answer is love. It is the love we have for Christ, the love we have for God, that empowers and enables our endurance. It is all about love. Love prompts our holding on to Christ. Love prompts our constancy. Love prompts our obedience. Love promises, or rather, prompts our loyalty to Christ, even on the field of battle. And if we're not standing firm, and we're not consistent, and we're not enduring, then the answer to that is clear. Our love for Christ is weak. It's weak. There is a bit of a stinger in that tale, isn't there? As James wraps up this verse, it is for those who love Christ. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord has you in the fiery furnace of affliction to test your love for Him. Do you really love your Father? Do you really love his son? Could it be that the Lord has lovingly brought affliction into your life to teach you to delight in him? To make your love for him the strongest and biggest thing in your life? I can assure you He will not leave you alone until you love him. He will mess with you in your life. He will disrupt your life one way or the other 
until you love him. And he does that because he first loved us. He wants you to be a Christian who endures, who reaches maturity. And he will go after what you love. And he will make you lay down your toys and lay down your idols and lay down those false deities that we all worship and find your joy in him alone. Blessed are those who endure. Thank the Lord for trials. He is at work. The one who began a good work in us by his love will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. May the Lord teach us to love him all the time. Would you prepare your heart to come to the